Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. We are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and right now we're working through the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6. As you were turning there, just I mentioned the book last week. This is the new edition of the book. So uh, God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible by Vaughn Roberts. Uh, I bought a number of copies this week, and they're at the main door on the way out. There's a couple stacks of these books. So if you're curious to know more about the Bible storyline in a relatively short book that's accessible, easy to understand, this is a great resource to turn to. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read for us the Lord's Prayer, and then I will pray briefly, and we will, uh, again, we're going to spend the sermon again on verse 10 only today. Well, a little bit of 9 and mostly on 10. So verses 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's bow our heads again together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look more at this particular part of the Lord's Prayer, that we would be edified, that we would better understand how to pray as Jesus is instructing us here, and I pray that you would help lead us into what is true and biblical, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here last week, you'll remember the introduction to this sermon, I hope, but I'm going to use some slides, and again, these slides are from Von Roberts. I did not make these. These are from, uh, from the author of that book, and uh, you have here, remember that basic definition of the kingdom that I gave last Sunday, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing His blessing. That's the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. And this, this next slide... I really, I don't want to go too far on this, but if, if you took the time to memorize these eight words, they all start with P, doesn't that help? <laughs> if you could take the time to memorize these eight words, so I'm not going to quiz you on it next week, uh, th- this would be an amazingly brief and I think accurate and helpful way to summarize the entire Bible. If you were just having a conversation with someone and they asked you, can you explain the story of the Bible? If you had just these basic things memorized, I think you could really begin to do that. So again, the Old Testament, you have the pattern of the kingdom. Then in the fall, you have the perished kingdom, then the promised kingdom, then the partial kingdom under David and Solomon, and then the prophesied kingdom in the Old Testament prophets. And then the New Testament, you have the present kingdom because where the king is, the kingdom is. Jesus arrives. The king is present. Number seven, where we live, is the proclaimed kingdom. Go into all nations, right? Uh, Preach the gospel. Uh, disciple the nations, bring them in, have them baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And number eight, finally, we're looking in the future to the perfected kingdom, when all things will be as they are meant to be. So let me just again walk through these, because I really want these to be uh, deeply in our memory, and I hope that they make sense to us, if you can even read these on the screen here. So in the beginning, with Adam and Eve, you have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and they are under God's rule, 
They have instructions, and they are experiencing perfect relationship with God and perfect blessing from God. I've heard it said Adam wasn't so much righteous, although it's true he was sinless, but Adam had maybe more accurately untested innocence when he was first created. Uh, He had not yet achieved a righteousness in the sense of he had not accomplished a righteousness, but he was sinless and he was innocent, he and Eve, but very soon they failed the test and they plunged the world into sin. So number two, you have the perished kingdom. And now everyone is born not part of God's people. We are not born children of God. We are born in, uh, in, in alienation from God. We are born at enmity with God. Uh, so God's people, it was broken down. They, God's place, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and they had disobeyed God's rule, and they had inherited the curse that comes in Genesis 3. But God makes a promised kingdom that a son of Abraham and a son of Eve will come and battle Satan, crush the serpent's head. He will then reopen the doors to paradise and bring people back. And we are promised here that Abraham's descendants will be living in the promised land, and they will be a blessing to Israel. God will bring blessing to Israel and the nations. Then for a long stretch of the Old Testament, you have the partial kingdom. If you follow along here, what I mentioned last week, Genesis through the middle of Exodus is following the birth of the people. The people are multiplying. From the middle of Exodus all the way through Leviticus, you have emphasis on rule and blessing. If you obey these instructions, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will receive covenant curse. And then the books of Numbers through Joshua primarily emphasize God's place, the promised land, especially Joshua as they take the promised land. And then Judges through 2 Chronicles is God's king. And remember, God's king is how God is going to rule through a human agent and bring His blessing But as we look at the partial kingdom, does any king measure up to that standard? No, because even David and Solomon, the high point of Israel's history, sin grievously, and the partial kingdom falls apart as exile comes, and Babylon and earlier Assyria disband the kingdom, and it falls into shambles, and everything looks hopeless. Then you have the prophesied kingdom. As you read the prophets, remember, the focus of virtually all the prophets is sin, judgment, and hope. So, They are promising a new Israel, including the nations, a new temple and a new creation, and a new covenant and a new king that is coming in the future. And we all have our eyes peeled for what this future king may look like. That's the end of the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament ends on a major cliffhanger. What is going to happen? All the plot points are unresolved of the story. Everything's hanging in in, in the air, as it were. And then after 400 years of no prophet speaking, from Malachi till John the Baptist, there is no prophet inspired by God. And then all of a sudden, God sends His Son, Jesus Christ. He is true Israel, the true Son of Abraham. He is now God's place. He's the true tabernacle, the true temple, the true place where we go to meet with God. And God's rule and blessing comes through Jesus, the true King and the resurrection life that we need that comes only through Jesus. Jesus ascends to heaven, and now we live in the time of the proclaimed kingdom. God's people are the church, Abraham's true offspring in Christ. And God's place right now, temporarily, is the church. This is the embassy of the kingdom. This is the outpost of the kingdom. Let me just stop there. I think this is a great metaphor, an embassy of the kingdom, right? So the embassy represents another country in a foreign land. And so they, they, they have the, 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 the authority to officially represent their homeland in a foreign land. We are sojourners and pilgrimers, pilgrims in a foreign land. 
We are not home yet. We are aliens and strangers. We are exiles. They use the Babylonian language to describe us living here. We're in Babylon. We're in the fallen world here that is in rebellion against God. And so, local churches have been given authority from heaven to represent heaven on earth. When we accurately teach God's Word on earth, the King is speaking to His people. When God's Word is accurately taught, when we respond to God's Word humbly, God's reign and rule is at work in our midst through His Spirit, and God is at work through His Word, through His Spirit, in His people, in local churches, and that is how God's kingdom is present on earth. But again, we're still here as an embassy, not as our homeland. This is why in Philippians, Paul keeps saying, live as citizens worthy of the kingdom of heaven, because our citizenship is in heaven and from which we eagerly await a Savior. I don't want to go on a detour here. I don't think it's really a detour. But if you remember years ago, we went through Philippians a few years ago. Paul was speaking to the Philippians, and the Philippians had this interesting thing. Philippi was far away from Rome, and many people who lived in Philippi had never even been to Rome, and yet many of them also had Roman citizenship, and the culture reflected the home city of Rome, and Philippi was almost a little mini-Rome far from Rome. And so Paul is picking up on the language of citizenship in Philippi, and he says, listen, just as some of you are so proud of your Roman citizenship, and some of you have never even been home to Rome, but you're a citizen of Rome, but you've never even been to the city of Rome, you live far away and you represent Rome's rule in a faraway land, so you who know Christ, you have not yet been to heaven, you have not yet met the risen King, but your citizenship is still there in heaven. And we on earth are embassies representing Christ's reign and rule on earth. Our ultimate allegiance is to He as our King. And when people can see the rule of Christ reflected in our life, they see something of His glory as our light shines before men and they give glory to our Father in heaven. But as you know about the proclaimed kingdom, if you look on the screen, this may be a little confusing of an image, but you've got the present age And it it moves through the first coming of Christ, and then you have the second coming of Christ in the future, which is the age to come. And you remember, this is one of the fundamental tensions of the New Testament letters and Acts and Revelation 2. One of the fundamental tensions is the fact that the kingdom is here and the king has come, but the kingdom is not yet fully here and the king has not yet returned. And we live in the overlap of the ages. This is a fundamental doctrine of the New Testament. So the, the Bible can say that you are already adopted as sons. And then Romans, they can say, we eagerly await our adoption as sons. Well, which is it? Are we adopted or are we waiting? And the answer is yes. You you are adopted. You, You are legally adopted into God's family if you know Jesus right now. You have full rights of being sons of God. God is your father at this very moment because of Jesus. And yet, it is not publicly and as visibly known as it one day will be your status in relationship to the triune God of Scripture. Because when Jesus comes back and He resurrects your body and He gives you a glorious body and you reign with Christ and it is visibly seen by the unbelieving world at that time as every knee is bowed, whether, whether willingly or by force, every knee will bow in that moment and it will be publicly seen in a way never before known in this age that you are truly the sons of God. So you're a son now, but you will be more obviously seen as adopted when the return of Christ comes. And you can think of all kinds of doctrines that that play out in these kinds of terms. We are a new creation in Christ right now, and yet we still battle with indwelling sin every single day, do we not? We fight against our flesh every single day. It it is wanting to get control. We're tempted by our sin, and we have an all-out assault on our sinful nature. And I can't get tired of saying this. Your number one enemy in life 
is yourself. And if you don't believe that, you're in some trouble. Because your number one enemy is your own flesh, and you've got to fight your flesh with the Spirit's power. If you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die, both now and eternally. We we must be at war with our sin. So we are new creations now, but there is coming a day when our new creation status will be absolutely visible, and it will be absolutely there, and there will be no more war with our flesh. So this diagram, I don't know if you'll be able to even see this from where you are. It's a little hard perhaps to see, but you've got there, if I can even maybe write on the screen, you've, you've got uh, the, the, the perfect pattern of the kingdom with the fall. You've got the perished kingdom. Then you've got the promise of the kingdom. And then you've got the Old Testament history as we trace through the partial kingdom. There is the decline of exile in Babylon, but then there is a prophetic promise. Then the king shows up, born in Bethlehem. We are now living in these last days right here in the overlap of the kingdom, and then finally the new creation when Jesus returns and He will arrive and all things will be as they are meant to be. So that brings us to the last point. The last of the eight points is the perfected kingdom. God's people will be all people from all nations who are united to Christ. God's place will be the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, and God's rule will be eternally and joyfully obeyed, and there will be His eternal blessing that we will get to be privileged to enjoy in that state. So with all that in mind, now we've talked about it for two weeks, let's look back at verses 9 and 10 of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew uh, verse, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you an interpretation. I grant you it is debated, but this is by far a majority position. That doesn't mean it's right, but I, I, you can test this. I think there is a good argument to make, and I could list a number of people who make this in more detail, that you have our Father in heaven as sort of the title. Who are we talking to? We're talking to our Father who is also in heaven. Scott mentioned how Father represents His tenderness and nearness. And in heaven represents His transcendence and holiness and otherness, and those two things are held together in heavenly Father. Those two things are are great to hold in tension together. They're not really in tension, but together. And then you have three requests, and then you have the phrase, on earth as in heaven. And I really do think that all three requests are being asked to be done on earth as in heaven. So I think they go together. Your name be hallowed on earth as in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that on earth as it is in heaven is qualifying all three of the first requests of this prayer. And a whole bunch of people argue for that and can explain why, but it makes a whole ton of sense to me as well. So here's how I would sort of try to explain how we pray those three requests today in the here and now. I think we would all agree that the ultimate fulfillment of these three requests is going to happen only at the return of Christ. God's name will only be hallowed It will only be set apart as holy. It will only be set apart as glorious and weighty and worthy of respect and admiration and esteem and praise and all those things. God's name will only be perfectly and fully hallowed when Christ returns. God's kingdom will only come fully in the perfected kingdom when Christ comes. And His will will be done on earth fully and truly and completely only when Christ returns. So these three requests ultimately find fulfillment when Christ returns and all those things happen on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, the meek will inherit the earth is referring to the new heavens and the new earth. 
This is referring to the new creation. And so that is what we're ultimately praying for. God, hasten the day that on this renewed earth, your name is hallowed by everyone here. Your kingdom has come in fullness and all eyes see it. And your will is done perfectly by us and by everyone else on earth as it is in heaven. But I think there's another aspect to these three requests. We're not just asking for the final culmination, although that is certainly the main point. We're also saying, Lord, in the meantime, may these things happen as much as possible across this planet before Christ returns. May, Lord, on earth right now today, your name be hallowed in my heart. Right? Hallowed's been hijacked by Halloween, right? It's right around the corner. Hallow. We only use the word hallow for Halloween these days. But as you know, All Hallows Eve, it used to be called, the night before the holy day. And so All Hallows Eve is when Halloween celebrations and all that started to formulate. Well, the word hallowed is an old English word that we keep because we're so used to praying the Lord's Prayer the way that we've prayed it for hundreds of years in English that, that it may sound foreign to us, but it is saying, God, may your name be set apart as glorious and sacred and holy. May people esteem your name. And people People today take God's name so lightly, but it starts with my own heart. Right now, God, let your name be hallowed in my life. Lord, may your kingdom come in my life now and let your will be done in my life right now. See, l- let me make an important point. I don't think I said this directly last week. Many people have talked about how the Bible storyline can be broken down in two different ways. One is sort of the panoramic view. You have creation fall, redemption, restoration, which is these eight points that we're walking through, right? You have the kingdom in in, in seed form, it falls apart, it's rebuilt, Christ comes. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God's kingdom comes in its fullness. That is good news, the good news of the kingdom, but it is not good news for all because it's only good news for me that God is going to restore and renew the world and judge evil. It's only good news for me being someone who is who has been saved from an evil life. It's only good news for me how? It's only good news for me if I know Christ in a saving way. So the reason why the gospel is attached to the kingdom, if I can just be honest here, we as evangelicals normally are very comfortable with the gospel and justification and forgiveness. If you're like me, we've tended to be uncomfortable with the kingdom language. We don't quite know what to say about the kingdom. We know what to say about the gospel. We're not sure what to say about the kingdom. And what I want to say is these two things are in perfect harmony with each other. The kingdom is what God is doing to restore the creation. He is going to rebuild this thing, make all things new, and He is going to save His people and bring judgment on His enemies, and His kingdom will come. But that is only good news if I personally have seen my sin, confessed it, repented and turned from it in disgust, put my faith in the finished work of a crucified and risen Savior who died in my place for my sins, have been forgiven, have had His righteousness counted as my own, to be able to stand holy and righteous in God's sight because of Christ's finished work. If that has happened, if I've trusted Christ, now the kingdom story is really good news for me. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, you will not even see the kingdom if you are not born again. The kingdom is only good news for those who know Jesus in a saving way and have been rescued by the gospel of grace. Now, that's a very long introduction. I'm going to make three relatively brief points for the main part of the sermon here. These are going to be relatively brief. Do not fear. Maybe fear a little bit. Don't fear too much. Three, three points that are going to be relatively brief. Number one, so trying to apply this verse, verse 10, to our lives. What are we praying for and against? Number one, we are praying when God's kingdom is coming. We're praying against the kingdom of darkness. Number two, we're praying for the advance of Christ's kingdom now. 
and we're praying for the full arrival of Christ's kingdom in the future. So number one, we're praying against the kingdom of darkness. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. I've hinted at some of these very ideas already in the sermon, but I want to read this well-known passage. We are all born as willing participants in the kingdom of darkness. We are born apart from Christ, dead in sin. Let's, let's listen to these words, but there is still hope in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, stop there. This does not mean that we were manipulated into something. This is, we were willing participants. We were following, walking, we were living in, carrying out. We were doing this with our heart, with our desires. Our affections were in love with the kingdom of darkness. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So hear me on this. When we pray for His kingdom to come now, we are praying against the kingdom of darkness. We are praying that people who, like we were, who are lost in sin, dead in sin, would wake up to the greatness of Jesus, would flee from their sin and flee to Christ and trust Him, and that the kingdom of darkness would begin to shrink as many are one to Christ. So we're praying against Satan's dominion and kingdom. Point number two, we're praying for the advance of Christ's kingdom now. Now, I, I want to flesh this out back in Matthew 6 with the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe 10 years ago, some of you may have read Kevin DeYoung's little book, Just Do Something. It's a great short book on decision-making and finding, quote, God's will for your life. He actually critiques a lot of that way of thinking, but it's a great short book, uh, Just Do Something, by Kevin DeYoung. So I got some of these ideas from him, but a lot of people talk about these things. Let me say something about God's will. Let your will be done. Isn't God's will always being done? He's sovereign. What, what are we praying for? We say God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let me make a distinction here. This is going to get a little technical for a moment. A lot of theologians for a long time have distinguished these, but I think you can prove these easily from the Bible. There are multiple ways in which God's will is spoken of in Scripture. And if you are unable to distinguish these things, you're going to get very confused very fast reading your Bible. I'm going to give you Probably, I'm going to give you three, but I'm going to focus on two of them. So, here, here are two ways that God's will is spoken of in the Bible, and it's, it is necessary that we know how to distinguish these. One is, theologians have called it God's commanded or revealed will, His commanded or revealed will, what He tells us to do, like don't murder, don't steal, His, His revealed commanded will, and the other His is sovereign or secret will, His sovereign or secret will. 
Now, are you ready to be confused for a moment here? If you've never heard this before, this will probably sound at first perplexing, and I don't have all the answers to this, but here we go. Are you ready? So, in the Bible, God's revealed will and His sovereign will are often not the same. Can I give you some… If you, if you don't believe this, can I just give you some examples? They're all over the Bible. So, you ready? God says things like, love your brother, right? Lo- love, love your brother. Be kind to your family. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. That was against God's commanded revealed will, right? That they sold him into slavery for some silver pieces. That, that was a sin against God's revealed and commanded will to love your neighbor as yourself. And yet at the end of the story, Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me. By selling me here into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many lives. So God's sovereign secret will was at work the whole time purposing that Joseph be sold into slavery, be betrayed by Pharaoh's wife, be forgotten in prison for several years, and be exalted to Pharaoh's right hand. So God's sovereign secret will is happening all the time. It's never being broken. It's always happening exactly on cue. It never messes up. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Nothing is left out. God works all things according to the counsel of His secret sovereign will. How about, how about this one? When Jesus was betrayed by Judas, we are told that was Judas disobeying God's revealed commanded will when He betrayed Jesus? Yes. But did it happen according to God's secret sovereign will? Yes. Jesus said, the Son of Man is betrayed as has been determined. By who? By God. And yet, woe to the man by whom He is betrayed. Or you can take Jesus' crucifixion. The greatest violation of God's revealed will of all time was the murder of Jesus. And yet, Acts 4 says it happened according to the predestined plan of God. So, you have God's revealed commanded will, don't murder. And you have God's secret sovereign will, I sent my son into the world to die for sinners. And the Bible teaches both of these things often in the same verse. Okay, so, when we are praying, your will be done on earth as in heaven, we are not praying in this verse, may your secret sovereign will be done on earth as in heaven. It's already happening all the time. Never has stopped happening. Everything that's ever happened has been according with God's secret sovereign will. He is as sovereign over history as Shakespeare was sovereign over his plays. Every pen stroke is from God's secret sovereign plan, and we can trust Him. But what we are praying in this prayer is that God's revealed and commanded will that His will of command, what He has clearly commanded us to do in Scripture, that that be carried out by us and by others, just as the angels carry out God's command in heaven without ever moving to the right or to the left, but always perfectly. Let me just add one little third use of will. One is what you could call God's will of direction. This is the one that people have often been preoccupied with. Which college should I go to? Who should I date? Who should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I move? And these are not illegitimate questions in the Christian life. These are important and necessary questions to think about. But the Bible does not have a teaching that says God will always reveal our next step in terms of His will of direction, as if God's going to have, you know, Kevin Young calls it the liver shiver. The, the, the parting of the clouds and the beam of light that comes down on the person you're supposed to marry. Like, Lord, out of this crowd, let the beam of light show me who she is. It just, ha- I know, okay, the will of direction. This is, let that tree branch move and not that one. Then I'll know I'm supposed to go to that college. Okay, lay out the fleece like doubting Gideon, right? No, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, God's will of direction is real. God does direct our steps. In a man's heart, he plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. God directs our steps. But God's will of direction is not something we are commanded to find out ahead of time in Scripture. What we are called to do is to figure out God's commanded will. 
Love my neighbor. Be sanctified. Grow in holiness. Set apart God's name as holy. Love others. Love people. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. That is God's will for me in Christ Jesus. Our, our job is to figure out God's commanded will and pray that God give us the willingness and ability to do that and obey that. And as we make decisions, we pray for wisdom, we seek insight, we get counsel, and we make the best decision we can make. And then we look back and we see God's providential guidance as we go through life. But Kevin DeYoung names the book, Just Do Something. <laughs> don't wait for the magic eight ball to tell you where you're supposed to go. Just do something. Don't make it into some mystical experience. God's will of direction is real, but it's something we look back and see in retrospect. It's not something we try to see ahead of time. And can I just, this is a side point entirely, but I feel, I just got to say this. I think the reason the will of direction became such an obsession over the last half century in evangelicalism is because we, it's a kind of misplaced prosperity theology. It, it basically says, if I can figure out the right college, job, and girlfriend or boyfriend, then I'm going to have like this amazing, like prosperous life. And uh, that's a misunderstanding even of God's will in the first place. I think we think if we can push, if we can punch in the numbers just right, we can unlock this prosperous future that God has for us. And what if I'm not in the center of God's will? Well, the question is, are you obeying God? Are you obeying His commanded will in Scripture? If you are, then you are following God's will for your life. Uh, don't, don't get freaked out about, well, what if I went to the wrong restaurant and I met the wrong person and it's the wrong… That is just a road to despair. That, that is not the way we are to think. In your heart, you plan your steps, but the Lord determines your steps. So in this, in this uh, text, take first, you don't have to turn there, 1 John 2, this is God's will that we're praying for in this verse. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's the will we're praying for, that we obey God's revealed, commanded will for our life. Final point of the sermon, number three, we're praying for the full arrival of Christ's kingdom in the future, that His kingdom would come. We're praying for the full arrival of Christ's kingdom in the future. Now, these points are directly from a Puritan, not from me. This is Thomas uh, Watson in his book on the Lord's Prayer, I'm just going to read these. I hope this is just a comforting and encouraging thought to you as you think about when the kingdom comes in fullness, what that means for the believer. It's just it's almost too good to be true. Remember on the day of the resurrection in Luke 24, the disciples saw Jesus. He's eating the fish to prove he's not a spirit, right? Amazing, amazing moment. And then it says that they were disbelieving for joy and were marveling. They were thinking this is too good to be true. They were dis the joy was so intense that Jesus might be alive from the dead that it made them disbelieve. They disbelieved for joy. This is too good to be true, and yet it was true. So I hope this lands on you as, as believably true because of what Christ has done. Listen to what Thomas Watson, the Puritan, wrote from hundreds of years ago. In the kingdom of heaven, we shall be freed from the imperfections of our nature. We shall glorify God without a mixture of sinful motives. Can you, um, you've never experienced that, and I haven't either. 100% pure motives, perfectly glorifying God and not actually caring about me. To be lost in the wonder of Christ. 100%, that is going to happen. Number two, in the kingdom of heaven, we shall be freed from all toilsome labor. 
No more pain, sickness, or fear that, shall, that we will ever experience those things again. Number three, in the kingdom of heaven, we shall be beyond the reach of temptation. Beyond the reach of temptation. No more worry, depression, discouragement. No more loneliness. Number four, in the kingdom of heaven, we shall be freed from all vexing cares. Vexing cares torture the mind, waste the spirit, and eat out the comforts of life. What need has a glorified saint to take any anxious care who has all things provided for him? There is the tree of life bearing all sorts of fruit. When the heart will be free from sin, our heads also will be free from anxious care. Number five, in the kingdom of heaven, we shall be freed from all doubts and scruples. Listen, he says here, in the life of the best saint, doubtings trouble him. Is that not true? There are different kinds of doubts that we still have because our faith is not yet sight. And in that day, all doubting will be gone. All of the doubting of, am I truly a believer? Is, it, is Jesus really coming back? All those doubts you may have ever struggled with. I, I, early on in my faith, I had major doubt issues for a couple of years. All doubts will be gone. Never again. Faith will be turned to sight. He says, in this life, the best saint has his doubtings as the brightest star has its twinkling. But when the saints shall come into the kingdom of heaven, there shall be no more doubtings. The Christian shall then say, now I know that I am passed from death to life. Now I am in my Savior's embraces forever. Number six, in the kingdom of heaven, we shall be free from all the society of the wicked. Those who want to tear us down and make us focus on ungodly things will not be present. Number seven, in the kingdom of heaven, we shall be free from any even apparent sign of God's displeasure. Number eight, in the kingdom of heaven, we shall be freed from all division. In this kingdom, there shall be no more vilifying of one another. Those who before, I could, hard, those who before could hardly pray together shall praise God together. There shall not be one jarring string in all the saints' music. In the kingdom of heaven, we shall be freed from all vanity and all dissatisfaction will be freed also from the torments of hell. We will have a full knowledge of God. He says, we will not know Him fully, but we will be like a vessel in the sea that is full of the ocean, but not all the ocean is in the vessel. In the kingdom of heaven, we, with, we shall with these eyes see the glorified body of Jesus Christ. In the kingdom of heaven, we shall enjoy the society of an innumerable company of angels. And finally, in the kingdom of heaven, we shall have sweet society with the glorified saints. Oh, what a blessed time will it be when those who have prayed together, wept together, and suffered together shall in that place rejoice together forevermore. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, I pray that your name would be hallowed, your kingdom would come, and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray even right now, starting with all of us in this room, that we would set apart your name and who you are as holy and worthy in our own heart and life, that your kingdom reign would break into our hearts and take over our affections and our will, and that we would be joyfully submissive to your rule. We pray that your will would be done, your commanded, revealed will would be done in our life, starting right now, all of us, that we would long for that, the joy of being who we were made to be in Christ. 
God, we pray that the kingdom of darkness would be defeated. As we know, one day it will be finally defeated. It has already been decisively defeated on the cross. And God, we thank you that we have an incredible future to look forward to beyond this world, which the Puritans so often called a veil of tears. We will make it through that veil of tears and there will be a glorious day. There will be uninterrupted fellowship with the triune God. There will be the visible presence of Jesus in bodily form. There will be all saints who've gone before us present to greet us. There will be no more worry, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more loneliness, no more sin, no more dishonoring of your name. There will be absolute maximum joy in Christ, uninterrupted fellowship, no more self-conscious, self-centered, selfish thoughts that interrupt even the best moments of our worship and prayer and Bible reading. No more wondering what someone thinks about us in any particular moment. All focus on Christ. All eyes on Him. God, I pray that we would taste even a little of that, even as we sing now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.